Pete. As Matt said, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Malachi, so please turn back in the Bibles uh, to Malachi chapter 3. You'll find it on page 802 if you're using one of the church Bibles. And before we look at that in more detail, let me pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please speak to each one of us now through this part of your word. Please open our eyes to see more of what you are really like, so that we live lives that point others to you. Amen. Queen Elizabeth learned to drive as a young woman when serving with the Women's Auxiliary Territorial Service. She gained on-the-job training as a driver and as a mechanic, so she was capable not only of driving but of repairing vehicles. But she never took a driving test. In fact, as Queen, she didn't need a driving licence. And I thought I'd begin by telling you about how I passed my driving test. I started lessons on the day of my 17th birthday. I was so keen to gain the independence I thought a driving license would bring me. My parents weren't able to take me out driving, so my only practice was the lessons themselves, which were expensive, and I probably took my test too soon. Yes, the excuses are mounting up already. But in the end, it took me five attempts to pass. The first three tests I failed in exactly the same way. The very moment I left the test center. Uh, the exit was up a ramp and it led straight onto a main road. So I needed to begin with a hill start, but I was incredibly nervous, so I lunged straight out into the main road. Emergency brakes were activated and of course I failed immediately. But still, we had to go through the entire test. Tests two and three were exactly the same, believe it or not, except this time I approached the exit even more nervously each time, and the results was two more failures. Test four, I actually got out of the test centre safely. The test seemed to go well. I was getting particularly excited as I saw the test centre again at the end of the drive, and from the quick glance on the checklist on the instructor's lap, I could see that I had a clean sheet with no major failures. However, there was a bus stopped on the road just 100 metres or so away from the centre. I carefully overtook it, got back to the centre with a big grin. I was absolutely sure I had passed. Alas, no. The bus had stopped over a pedestrian crossing, and with my eyes firmly on the bus and taking care to overtake it, I had failed to notice that the traffic lights on the pedestrian crossing were red, and I had gone straight through. Then came test five. Now, something very interesting happened there. At some point in the test, as often happens, the examiner asked me to pull over to the side, and then when I was ready, to drive off safely. I stopped, did all the mirror checks, indicated and pulled away without stalling. But then after a few minutes, he asked me to pull over on the side again. And again, he said the same thing, when you're ready, drive off safely. He emphasized the word safely. So I reasoned, okay, I must have done it wrong the first time, that's bad news, but I also realised he must be giving me a second chance, because otherwise he wouldn't have pulled me over again, would he? So that means I haven't failed yet. So I did the manoeuvre again, and the test continued. When we got back to the test centre, he said to me, what must you always do when pulling away from a stationary position? I said, check your mirrors and your blind spots. Correct, he said. 
that you didn't do that. So I gave you a second chance. Then came those wonderful words, I'm pleased to say you have passed. <laughs> what a great moment. Now, Malachi is one of the books of prophecy written in the history of Israel. Prophets, as God's spokesmen, bring God's word to God's people. And the purpose of those messages, God's purpose for speaking through them, is firstly to remind them of what he is like, so they can see and understand better his character, that he is faithful, that he's all-powerful, that he hates sin, that he's gracious, and so on. And secondly, to challenge the behavior of God's people. The prophets hold up a mirror and show us where our behavior reveals a wrong attitude towards God. But the point of all of that is to give us a chance to put wrong behavior right, to change our ways, to repent of our sin against God. At times they are hard words to read, but God's purposes are always loving and gracious, and his words bring life and light. And just like my driving examiner, God is letting us know we have failed while we still have time to change. This wonderful passage from Malachi reminds us that God is a God of grace. He is generous and faithful. It challenges us to repent of doubting his generosity, and it challenges us to obey his call to live as a generous people. Obviously, we now live after the coming of Jesus, so we do need to take account of that. But God's character never changes, and neither does the need for God's people to repent and seek his help to live according to his ways. And besides, the wider context of the time of Malachi is not that different to ours. It was a time where there was significant political and military and economic and social upheaval. Enormous shifts were going on in the balance of power in the international scene. That was going on in the world around them. And it's a time where many, if not most, had set aside God's word and his ways. We have a lot in common with them. But the message of this passage is that our behaviour reveals our attitude to God, or to put it the other way around, what I believe about God determines how I will act. So what were the Israelites doing wrong? Look with me at verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. They're not obeying God's commands. And the specific command that they're not obeying is to do with something called the tithes and contributions. Now, when God's people took possession of the land that God had given them, 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel were allocated land. The 12th tribe, Levi, was set aside to serve God full time, and so weren't given land. The Levites included, Levites included the priests who served in the temple, and instead of earning a living from the land, from the plants that were sown and the animals that were um, carried on the land, the other 11 tribes each gave 10% of the produce of that land, crops and animals, to support the Levites and also those who were in need, foreigners, orphans and widows. And you see all of that in God's word. Verse 8 says this, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes 
and contributions. So we see here that the issue was that they were refusing to give God the full tithe. They were half-hearted in their giving. The language here is very strong. God says they are robbing him. It was his command, after all, that they were disobeying. But it's also a matter of social justice. They were neglecting the support of the Levites and those in need, the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. Now, the nation at this time was facing hard times economically and they were not prospering, so giving away 10% wasn't easy, no doubt, but their behavior revealed that they didn't believe that God was actually generous. And they didn't believe that he was faithful to his promise to bless the people of Israel so that they would show a watching world what life under his rule was like, that it was a delight. And as people saw that, they were supposed to see it and respond by turning to him. And so doubting his generosity has led to their disobedient behavior. And that in turn had a result. Just as living God's way brings blessing, so turning away from his ways brings trouble. In this case, failed harvests. As we read this, it may seem harsh of God, but he did it to sound a warning, to help them to see the impact of the way they were choosing to live. Look at verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So that was the challenge, just as my driving instructor said, okay, let's try this again. Pull over to the side and then when ready, drive off carefully. So God gives us a second chance and a third and a fourth and a fifth. He asks us to consider our ways He reminds them of what he is like, verse 6. For I am the Lord, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What these words talk about is the way that his nature and character do not change. That is what the prophet Malachi is revealing to us about God through these verses. And it's a truth that's for us as well. But what is it specifically about God that doesn't change? After all, God isn't the only one who doesn't change. Verse 7 goes on to say, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So God's people, too, do not change. Only in our case, it's our sinful turning away from God that is constant. The answer to that question is that God's unchanging nature is his grace. It's no accident that here they're called the children of Jacob. In verse 6, we see that. Jacob, who was also called Israel, gave his name to the Israelite people. He was the son of Isaac, who in turn was the son of Abraham. But he didn't become the father of Israel because of his goodness. In fact, he was a bit of a rogue. It was actually God's grace that meant that instead of receiving the punishment he deserved for disobeying God, he and his descendants became the children of God. God's unchanging nature is his grace. His generosity in promising to bless Israel and his generosity in holding to that promise 
despite their repeated and constant turning aside from God and their, and their disobedience. And that is the truth about God that this part of Malachi reveals to us. And where we have doubted that, and where our behavior reveals that we don't believe it, we need to repent. Verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. For them, that meant returning to trusting him as their generous and faithful God. It meant recognizing that they were wrong to doubt his generosity. It meant bringing, as it said in verse 10, the full tithe into the storehouse. But it didn't just end with their obedience. The result of doing that is to receive again God's blessing. But the blessing doesn't stop there. A watching world would see that God's way is the good way and would be drawn to come and see that life under his rule was a delight and so turn to him. Verse 12. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So what then does that mean for us? Do we need to tithe? Well, tithing in the Old Testament was tied up in the way that the nation of Israel was established and with the running of the temple and the sacrificial system and all of that looks different after Jesus. And as New Testament believers, we're not required to tithe in exactly the same way they did. But we saw in our second Bible reading, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15, that Christians are still commanded to give generously. Here is part of what that said. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And there is a principle in the New Testament of giving a portion of what we earn to God's work. So the more we earn, the more we give. Here's 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. In the Gospels, we see Jesus upheld the tithing principle. He did it in Matthew, directed at uh, God's uh, people of Israel, and in Luke, directed at non-Jews. And as Jesus upheld that tithing principle, so Christians consider giving 10% of their income as a helpful starting point. But some have found that that isn't always possible just as some have found that their circumstances has meant that they can give significantly more than that. How much you give is between you and God. And just like in Malachi, that generosity is to come as a response to God's grace to us and to the abundant abundant blessings that we have in Jesus, both spiritual and material. And it comes out of trusting him, trusting in him to keep his promise to meet all of our needs. And just as in Malachi, we're to show a watching world that God's way is great. In a world that can never be satisfied and just can't get enough. People are to look at the lives of Christians lived in God's way. At our priorities, at our simplicity of life, at our contentment and our generosity. And think, surely this is a better way to live. We want to know more of Jesus. Everything we have is a gift from God. And if we have more than we need, it's because he's given us more than we need so that we can use it generously to serve others and to spread the gospel. As we pray together in the Lord's Prayer, we long to see God's kingdom come and his will done in Tyneside, in our region, and throughout the world. 
We long for more and more people to hear about and know the God who is so faithful and who is so generous. That's why we're laying on those autumn events. That's why we long as a church to be involved in church planting in this region and beyond. That's why we support so generously world mission. But all of this costs money. And so there is a challenge here this morning regarding our giving and what that says about our attitude to God. But there are also wider applications too. Throughout her reign, the Queen's heart and purpose for serving her people was motivated by a genuine faith and hope in the one true God. We give thanks for her example as a servant-hearted leader who always looked to her King and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but in a way that sought to model what she had received and out of a position of faith. And perhaps in contrast to that, we have grown half-hearted in our service or just cynical about life or disengaged with other people and other things or half-hard-hearted about listening to God speak to us through his word or perhaps frankly fed up with God. Well, the message of this part of Malachi is that behind those behaviours is an attitude towards God that is sinful and needs challenging and needs changing. Because what I believe about God determines how I will act. Perhaps as we've been looking at this part of God's word, his Holy Spirit has been revealing to you areas of your life where this is relevant. What should we do about it? Well, verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Why? Because he's a God of grace. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He's a God of grace, but he's also a generous God. Verse 10, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So as we end, let's take a moment now just to reflect, let's to respond to God, each of us, as is appropriate. And then I'll lead us in a prayer of response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful truth that you are a God of grace and a God who has been so generous to us. Father, show us by your spirit where we, like those in the days of Malachi, need to repent and return to you, those areas of our lives where we betray a lack of trust, a lack of belief that you will keep your promises and that you are a good and generous God. Father, thank you that we can return to you and find the forgiveness that we need because of Jesus and his death in our place on the cross. Father, cause us to hold firmly to the truth of who you are, to those promises. And Father, by your spirit, make us a generous people. And Father, by your spirit, use that to draw many to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing in a moment, but two quick things to mention. Um, I'm aware that this uh, morning's passage brings up the issue of money and that for many of us that can be a challenging thing to talk about for a whole number of reasons. So I do want to draw your attention to something called the CAP Money Course that we're running as a church. 
It's a short, free course. It uh, helps you to budget and save and give and spend within your means. It's a really helpful course, and uh, many of us, as we are concerned about the increase of uh, cost of living, uh, and as we think about how to use our money, might consider that to be something helpful to do. We're planning two courses. Uh, there's one over two evenings in September, the 27th and the 29th. That's on Zoom, and there's one in person on the 17th, 24th, and 31st of October. Uh, let me know if you would like more details about that or have a look at our weekly email. And then if you do have any questions about how to give financially to support God's work here and throughout the world, then have a look at the giving pages on our website or contact our giving team, Claire Leith or Jolene Cooley would be very happy to help you.